This message is entitled, Knowledge of God in Action, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, and is given by Dr. Earl Rodmacher. Today we want to take two areas, basically, the area of the practical application of theology proper, and then I want to do prayer on the sovereignty of God. But before I do that, the life of Christ in stereo, I alluded to this a couple of times. I would like to say a few things about it because it ties right in with this matter of theology proper and looking at God as seen in Jesus Christ, the glory of God, and the importance of that as it relates to your own sanctification, 2 Corinthians 3.18. The man who was a compiler was a layman, Johnson Cheney, C-H-E-N-E-Y, and back before World War I, he was in college anticipating the ministry and preparing for it. One of his Greek professors at that time convinced him that the Gospels were full of contradictions and that they were therefore unreliable. And the more he studied those so-called contradictions, the more convinced he became that they were unreliable. And he came to the conclusion that the Gospels were unreliable and he had no reliable account of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And if he had no reliable account of the ministry of Christ, then he had no message to preach. And if he had no message to preach, he had to get out of preparation for the ministry. And that was a very logical conclusion. Too bad that more don't come to the same conclusion. But uh, be that as it may, he, he got out of preparation for the ministry and then went into World War I. During that time, he got back into fellowship with the Lord again through the ministry of one Dr. W.B. Henson, then the pastor of the Eastside Baptist Church in Portland, Oregon. It was a little late then to go back into preparation for the ministry. They didn't have a GI Bill. He couldn't see his way going through school with the children, the family, and so forth. And so he became or remained a layman and was a wherever distributor and became the Northwest representative for them. And became a deacon at the Melrose Baptist Church in Oakland, California. When he was in his middle years, and I'll let you decide what that is, for safety's sake, he contacted two cases of tuberculosis, a double case of tuberculosis, what was then called pulmonary tuberculosis and galloping consumption. And he was given no hope of living. On his deathbed, he requested that they might bring to him his Bible and a pair of scissors and a scrapbook. And he proceeded to take the scissors and cut the Gospels apart into little pieces to see if it wouldn't be possible to fit them together chronologically, sequentially, without any contradiction. And in the long process that this became, that deathbed hobby, by the way, lasted for seven years in that deathbed, and then for another 16 years, but as he was doing that, and through the process, he memorized the Gospels in Greek so that he was able to relate them back and forth one to the other in his own mind. I, by the way, have never had a Greek professor that had ever done that, but this layman did that. One of the first things he discovered was that the oft-repeated liberal criticism of the denials of Peter was not real. You remember when Christ said to Peter on one occasion, before the cock crows, you should deny me thrice. And on another occasion, he said, before the cock crows twice, you should deny me thrice. 
liberals have often landed on that to say, you see, if the Gospels are contradictory in such a simple thing as that, then surely we may expect contradictions in the more profound and difficult things like the Nativity account and the Resurrection account and so on and so forth. In fact, back in December of 1965, Life magazine put out a special issue of their magazine on the Bible. And one of the articles by Dr. Robert Coughlin, well-known critic, C-O-U-G-H-L-A-N, in his article, across two pages, there was a heading at the top, that the Gospels in many and important details are contradictory. And he cited the prophecy of the denial of Peter as a case in point. Well, as Cheney began to study that, that one of the first discoveries he made was that there were not three denials by Peter, but that there were six. There were three before the cock crowed once, and there were three more before the cock crowed twice. There were two before the trial of Caiaphas, and there were four after that trial. And they pick up momentum as you go along. But nowhere in 2,000 years of church history had that problem ever been solved. And then as Cheney continued to work, he found that the ministry of Christ, which has often been said to be three years, and there's no possibility of working all of the events of the life of Christ, especially the last year, into three years, and yet we have just accepted that without really dealing with it. Well, he found that the ministry of Christ was four years and described why that is so. Well, after 20 years of that, I came across him, and because of my intense interest that people should get off of studying the death of Christ all the time and realize that they're never going to grow a particle studying the death of Christ, for it wasn't given for growth, it was given for birth, and that they ought to study the life of Christ, for that is the life whereby we are to grow as we see it and pattern ourselves after it. Because of my interest in that, these two things dovetail together, and I worked with Cheney for the last three years as a theological and editorial consultant on the book, and then Dr. Ellison from our faculty worked as a consultant in the area of the English Bible on the book, and so after 23 years it was completed, and the day that he finished, he wrote me a long letter, even though we were on the same campus working, he would correspond with me often by letter in his meticulous way. And this was a two-page, single-space typewritten letter. And at the end of it, the last line said, Now I have finished my task. I need to pack my bags and hurry home. And he didn't know how far home he was going because that day he went all the way home. He went back to Oakland, had a stroke, and went home to be with the Lord 23 years after they had said that he was going to die. He completed to me what is one of the most monumental works in all of history. And the first time in 2,000 years that anybody has successfully woven together the four Gospels without adding one word or leaving out one word. You've heard of harmonies of the Gospels before, but there's not one of them that's really a harmony. For if you'll notice that they're in columns, and those aren't harmonies, those are four solos side by side. You don't have a harmony until you've woven it together. Others that have tried to weave them together have left out large portions of the scripture which they could not fit into it. So I think this has tremendous apologetic value from one standpoint, but the other thing that really thrills me is it gives people an opportunity to really get into the study of the life of Christ. And so I really take every opportunity I can to promote it, for I believe that whatever way we can do it to get people into the life of Christ is one of the most significant things we can do today. So that ties in with theology proper. Now, 
the other thing that I want to do and tying in with that for this hour, I would like to practically apply what we were talking about yesterday in a life situation. I realize that what we were talking about yesterday is pretty heavy and you need to go through the valley before you can really make the application. But that kind of study that we were talking about yesterday is the kind of thinking that enables a person to live above their environment. And I'd like to go to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, for this hour. And I would like to contrast the principles that Paul has there in that chapter and his situation with the kind of principles that are being propounded by leading behavioral psychologists today. Some time ago in Time magazine, September 20th, 1971, they had a front page, a cover photo of B.F. Skinner, who is probably the leading behavioristic psychologist in the world today, professor of behavioral psychology at Harvard University, the one who 15 years ago wrote the book Walden II, and then just last year came out with the book Beyond Freedom and Dignity. And Skinner is proposing a thesis that there is no inner man, that the doctrine of an inner man is just as fictitious as the doctrine of God. He believes in neither. I think that his psychology, tied together with Philippians 1.12 and following, gives us some thinking that relates not only to theology proper, but to anthropology as well, the character of man as well as the character of God. Skinner was a follower of Watson, who was the father of behavioristic psychologists from Johns Hopkins University. Uh, Skinner has the conviction that behavior is determined not from within, but from without. I quote, unable to understand how or why the person we see behaves as he does, we attribute his behavior to a person inside, Skinner explains. Mistakenly, we believe that man initiates, originates, and creates, and in doing so, he remains, as he was for the Greeks, divine. We say that he is autonomous. But Skinner insists that autonomy is a myth. And the belief in an inner man is a superstition that originated like belief in God, in man's inability to understand his world. With the rise of behavioral science, understanding has grown, and man no longer needs such fictions as, quote, something going on inside the individual, states of minds, feelings, purposes, expectancies, and all of that, end quote. The fact is, Skinner insists, that actions are determined by the environment. Behavior is shaped and maintained by its consequences. Going back to Watson, Watson described human behavior as a succession of physical reflex responses to stimuli coming from the environment. It was the environment alone, he felt, that determined what a man is. Give me a dozen healthy infants, he wrote, and I'll guarantee to take anyone at random and train him to become any type of specialist I might select, doctor, lawyer, even beggarman and thief, 
regardless of his talents, penchants, tendencies, abilities. The goal of this Watsonian behaviorism was the prediction and control of behavior, which suited Skinner to perfection. So that today, the leading behaviorist psychologist, B.F. Skinner, is proposing that man is totally controlled by his environment. Man is a machine. There is no inner man. There is no God. The total control of man is in the factors of his environment. Now, whereas that is a possibility with man, he may be controlled by his environment, that flies right in the face of the biblical doctrine of God and the biblical doctrine of man and man's relationship to his environment. Because in the word of God, we find beautifully that people rise up above their environment. You could hardly say that Paul was being environmentally controlled when he was in prison with his head and hands and feet in socks and singing praises to God in the middle of the night. That hardly was a product of his environment. Nor can you find environmental control in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. You find instead that Paul is rising above his environment. I'd like to read from verse 8 down through 18. For God is my witness, how greatly I long after you all in the tender mercies of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, and that you may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. In that kind of a context, Paul then says in verse 12, But I would that you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Now, if you're going to do contextual, grammatical, historical interpretation on such a passage, you cannot do it unless you understand something of what this thing is, or the things which happened unto him. What are the things which happened unto Paul? Well, you remember that Paul was a very well-equipped missionary. He is one who had had great preparation even from before the time he became a Christian. He was one who was schooled in all the learning of the teachers of Israel. He was one that was adequate to be a rabbi, perhaps was a member of the Sanhedrin, a man who not only was well-informed, intellectual, but he was zealous and sincere. He not only believed something, but he believed in standing up for his convictions. And consequently, he was zealous in putting Christians to death, throwing them into prison because of his faith in God and his belief that they were blasphemers. When God struck Paul down on the road to Damascus, and Paul found out that he was wrong in what he believed. He corrected his belief. He demonstrated his faith in Christ. And with the same kind of conviction, he turned right around and confounded the Jews 
that this Jesus is the very Christ, the Son of the living God. And in addition to that brilliant background and that strong conviction, the Lord also gave to Paul a time of seasoning for from that time on until he became an associate pastor of Barnabas in the church at Antioch was probably anywhere from 14 to 17 years. And then the church in Antioch sent he and Barnabas out as missionaries, and that began a very, very exciting tour of the area, establishing churches, and propounding his faith in Jesus Christ. The church at Philippi became so enamored, in the best sense of that term, by Paul that they invested heavily in him. They gave to him again and again and again out of their poverty, so that in the Macedonian church there, as recorded in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it said they gave liberally out of their poverty, and Paul relates to the same thing in Philippians chapter 4. Now, this was something of the background. The church at Philippi had hoped then that Paul, as an intelligent, convicted, sharp missionary, would be the one who would get to the head of the Roman Empire and be able to really share faith in Jesus Christ there and see a large number of them turn to the Lord. Unfortunately, Paul ended up in jail, and that was not a new thing for him. That was his custom. Someone has said that when Paul went to a new city, rather than checking out the Hilton, he checked out the local jail because that's probably where he would end up anyway. And so he looked at his quarters ahead of time. And that same thing happened to Rome. He did get to Rome, but he didn't get there the way they were anticipating he would get there. He got there in prison, and so he is confined underneath the emperor's palace. And the church at Philippi is really having a sorrowful time. Not only has Paul ended up in jail, but they sent to him Epaphroditus, their loving servant of Christ. And when he got there with his care package for them, then he got sick and he almost died. And so the Philippians are really having it. They have their crying towel out and they are really discouraged over what has happened to Paul. Now, this must be kept in mind when Paul says, I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me. In other words, you have two different viewpoints of exactly the same situation. As the Philippians look at Paul's situation, they come up with one conclusion. As Paul looks at the same situation, he comes up with another conclusion. The Philippians think of it as tragedy. Paul thinks of it as triumph. These are not two different situations. Therefore, the difference in their responses has to be within their own attitude toward the situation. It cannot be in the situation. It is their attitude toward the situation that is governing the result. And so Paul then corrects them. And he says, I want you to understand that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather, and those are military words, they relate to a strategic military advance. The things that have happened to me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. So that rather than being unto the detriment of the gospel, as you have concluded, because I'm here in prison, 
you need to understand that these things have been so ordered by God that they have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Now in the 13th through the 18th verses, Paul gives two cases in point to prove to them the truth of what he has just said. In verse 13, he deals with the physical, material victory that he has had. And in verses 14 through 18, he deals with the mental victory that he has had. In verse 13, he says, with the result that, or so that, my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. My bonds in Christ, obviously not talking about his investments, his Series E bonds, but his shackles that were around his wrist. So he's not ignoring his life situation. He's looking at them. He says, now get a good look at them. We're both looking at the same thing. My bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace. I said, think about it for a moment. To whom did you want me to go? Who were we hoping to get an audience with? We were hoping to reach right into the Caesar's household. Now he says, I want you to understand that that's where we are. And in Philippians 4, 22, he even relates back to them, all the saints greet you, chiefly, what saints? They that are of Caesar's household. So what are you crying about? You wanted to reach Caesar's household? We're reaching Caesar's household. Wasn't by the means that you had in mind? No, we never would have reached him that way. You couldn't have possibly paid enough money to get an audience with him. For obviously the Caesar is one who believes that he himself is God. And certainly he is not going to allow us to come up and have an audience with his staff and with his family to present one who is not God in his mind. Furthermore, he is saying to them that I am hereby enjoying missions sponsored by the Roman government. Now, how did that happen? Well, he says that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace, and if you have a marginal note, it says literally in the whole praetorium, meaning the Praetorium Guard. And if you go back and look up the history on this, you'll find that it's estimated that there probably were about 10,000 soldiers in the Praetorium Guard. The Praetorium Guard were the elite of the Roman army. They guarded the palace there in Rome, and they guarded the other senatorial provinces. And in that day, that was really something. If you were a member of the Praetorium, you had arrived. Now today, we think of a fellow who is a doctor, an attorney, some profession like that, they have really arrived. Not in Paul's day. You could be a doctor and be a slave. You could be an attorney and be a slave. You could be a professor and be a slave. Because there were many large, wealthy landholders who had all kinds of slaves of those professions. But you could never be a Roman soldier and be a slave. For a Roman soldier was a free man. To be a member of the Praetorian Guard was to be the epitome, the elite of the Roman soldiers. So these were the really high mucky mucks in Paul's day. 
Now today, when you go on a campus, different people will say, I sure wish that we could reach the editor of the campus paper. Boy, if we could win him for Christ, what a real strategic thing that would be. Or if we can get the captain of the football team. If we can reach the VIP on the campus, that would be tremendous. Now, Paul couldn't have reached greater men. And Philippi could not have ever gotten enough money together to sponsor a campaign to reach them. But God did it in his own way. Now, how did he do it? Well, he even used good witnessing strategy. He brought them to Paul two at a time. And he chained them to Paul. Now, you say, well, no, Paul was chained to them. Well, what's the difference? It's all in how you look at it, isn't it? They were as much chained to Paul as Paul was chained to them. And two at a time was real good. That way you didn't have a whole pack of people asking you questions all at the same time. And so Paul gave them the message, two at a time. Then they worked on a swing shift, and they rotated the guards, and they brought the next two in. And Paul gave them the gospel. In the meantime, these other two went out, telling all the rest of the guards what a nut this fellow was that they had in prison there. And in the process of explaining Paul's nuttiness, they became his missionaries. They were giving out his message. Now, I don't know how they did it totally, but I do know what Paul says. My bonds in Christ are manifest in the whole praetorium. Furthermore, he says, they are manifest in all the rest of Rome. When we want to get a message out, we print up all our brochures and we spend hundreds and thousands of dollars on four-color brochures and all the rest. But if you stop to think that Paul reached Rome without costing anything... I don't know whether they had the equivalent of a newsboy that went downtown in Rome and said something like, Hear ye, hear ye, Paul in prison for Christ's sake. I don't, I don't know how he did it. But one way or another, he says, all the rest, all of Rome, knew why Paul was in prison. He was in prison for Christ's sake. They heard about Jesus Christ. So you see, Paul was confined, but Paul's confinement did not destroy his ministry. God just gave him a little rest there. Saved him from tramping all over the city. Saved him from getting beat up there in the palace. Just kept him down there in a nice, cool, damp, dark prison cell. Now, we have our imprisonments too. How do we look at them? Some of you have heard of Richard Wurmbrandt, who was in prison in Romania, in communist prison camp for 14 years. And he tells about a girl that went in the same day that he went in, 17 years of age. And when she went in, and they put these shackles on her hand, she bent over and she kissed them. And she vocally, and so that all could hear, said, Thank you, Jesus, for the privilege of being able to suffer for you. And he said, because we went in on the same day, we also came out on the same day. And he said, I could hardly recognize the girl. In seven years, she looked so haggard. And he said, yet, when she came out, she did the same thing again. She bent over and she kissed the shackles and she said, thank you, Jesus, for the privilege of being allowed to suffer for you. You see, that's exactly what Philippians 1.29 means when it says, it is given to you in the behalf of Christ not only to believe in his name but also to suffer for his sake. And so there are those who can go to prison and they can really blow it. They can say, boy, faith just doesn't pay. 
You know, you give everything for God and then God lets this happen to you. It doesn't pay to serve God. Or somebody else goes down and says, thank you, Lord. What's the difference? What we were talking about yesterday, that's all the difference. What's your viewpoint of God is? And the reason Paul could have the responses that he had here was because of a particular viewpoint of God. For somebody else is not imprisoned by a physical imprisonment like that, but perhaps they are imprisoned by, or they are limited by their body. And so they say, you know, the reason I can't be more effective for Christ is because I have an infirm body. I have a body racked with pain and limitation. And so they do nothing. But on the other hand, there are people with the same infirmities doing great things and glorifying God. Same problem. Much like a gal like Martha Schnell Nicholson downtown. I don't know whether she is still alive or not, but I know that Lewis Gray Schaefer and J. Vernon McGee of Church of the Open Door used to talk about when they'd have a blue Monday and really think things were terrible, they'd go down and they'd visit Miss Nicholson. She was a woman that had more sicknesses in her body than you could probably list on one page. There was not a place on her body that you could touch that didn't hurt. And during latter years, she spent all of her time in a chair, night and day. Couldn't get out of that thing. And yet McGee and Schaefer would say they would never come away from her home, but what they would be absolutely rejoicing in the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. They didn't come away blue. They went there blue, but they came away rejoicing. You see, there's some people, all they can think about is getting rid of their infirmity. And then they'll praise God. You know something much better than that? Praising God with it. It doesn't really take much to thank God when you're healed of a disease. What really takes something is to thank God when you're not. God receives more glory from the latter than it does from the former. So all of us have our imprisonment. Some of us say, boy, if you worked on the campus that I worked on, you'd understand why you don't have any more zeal than I have. Or if you had the wife that I have, you'd understand why our home is like it is. If you had the reprobate husband that I have, you know, and so on and so forth. In essence, these people are all Skinnerians in their psychology. They are behaviorist psychologists. Now, they wouldn't think of following Skinner, theoretically, but they do it practically because they're all the time blaming their environment. God says, not on your life. That merely shows how small a concept of God you have. Now, Paul gives a second case in point in verses 14 to 18, and this is really the tougher one. This one gets into the mind. And many of the brethren in the Lord, becoming confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. But the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in that I do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Now notice the problem that Paul is talking about here. He's talking about his Orthodox brethren. Here he is in prison, and outside are two classes of people who are preaching Christ. Now he's not talking about those who are not preaching Christ, and don't use this verse to try to support a garbled message. That's not what he's talking about. 
he says, Christ is being preached with two different kinds of motivations. On the one hand, some are preaching Christ of envy and strife, seeking to add to my affliction. The others are preaching of love and sincerity and goodwill. And what were they doing? Well, think about it for a moment. Probably there was this one group of people that were saying, you know, I've been trying to get through to Paul for a long time. Paul just won't listen. He's too bullheaded. He thinks he knows it all. And uh, we've been trying to tell him that he doesn't and that he ought to listen to us who do know it all. But he won't listen to us. And therefore, God has had to put him in prison. He's had to put him down there and confine him and shut him up for a while so he can get through to him. Now, you'll notice that I'm not in prison. I'm outside. And I have the message of Christ. So hear ye me. Now, I don't know just how they worked it out, but Paul said of envy and strife, they were preaching Christ and they were adding to his affliction. Now, at first blush, you'd like to poke that guy right in the nose. You'd like to say, you dumbbell, don't you understand that Paul's got enough problems that it is without you adding to them? But Paul didn't say that. Paul says, I rejoice in their preaching Christ if they have to use my affliction against me. On the other hand, there were those out there who were preaching Christ who were emboldened to preach because of the kind of life Paul was living in prison. And they were saying, boy, if Paul in prison can be set for the defense of the gospel. And if he cannot win on the gospel message, then the least we can do who are on the outside, not in prison, is to preach boldly the same gospel that Paul is preaching. Now, let's use his boldness as an introduction to our message which we give out throughout all of Rome. Now, they were preaching of love, of sincerity, of goodwill. Now, we've got, again, the same thing today. Several years ago, there was an editor of a particular Christian periodical who wrote an article about Billy Graham. Billy Graham had then just gone overseas, and in route overseas, they stopped in Hawaii in a hospital because he developed a serious eye problem. They didn't know how far-reaching this was going to be. It could be something that would have thrown him out of the ministry. And they stopped in the hospital there, and this hospital experience was written up by this particular Christian writer, editor. And he said something like this, in essence, that, you know, God's been trying to talk to Billy Graham for a long time. Some of us have been trying to talk to him about his compromising alliances and some of his other viewpoints that he takes. And he hasn't been listening to us. And he hasn't been listening to God. And now God has had to put him on his back. Uh, hopefully, he'll be able to look up and see God and listen. And he went on like that for the particular article. Then several weeks later, I happened to be reading this same periodical. And in the meantime, the editor had fallen down a flight of stairs at his headquarters and he'd broken his leg. And now he chose to write this up. And he said something like this. You know, the word of God teaches us that all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And we may expect that if we really stand for the gospel, that the devil is going to hate it and he's going to do everything he can to stop our activity. And so your faithful editor is under the attack of the devil and therefore pray for him that he may continue to faithfully get out the gospel. I've often thought about that little incident, supposing that we got another news report from heaven on how God looked at these two things. Is it possible that God would have said that the devil was really trying to stop the ministry of Billy Graham in Hawaii? On the other hand, God was trying to talk to this, quote, faithful editor down here, and therefore he broke his leg, you know. The story could have been reversed. 
Now, that's the same kind of a situation that Paul was facing, and every one of us has that kind of a situation. We have the times when people misconstrue our motivation, that we have done something and they misinterpret it. I've, in my experience in a seminary where you get thrown out there in the front, have had many opportunities for people to take pot shots. And one of the latest ones was from a brother who was wailing away at me because of my support of Campus Crusade and consequently making attacks from any one of a half a dozen different directions. I really got hot under the collar about it, and I was about to sit down and write a good, nasty letter. However, the Lord seemed to be overruling, and he was keeping me from it. And then about that time, as I was thinking about it, the chairman of our board gave me a call, a telephone call, and he said, you know, we've had just about enough of this. He said, somebody needs to shut their mouths, and I think you're just the one to do it. You know, that's about all I needed at that point. I just needed a little encouragement to get on the throne myself and take it over. So I said, well, maybe that's true. Maybe I really ought to do that. So I got my pen out, and it got warmer and warmer and hotter and hotter, practically burned the paper up. And I scorched them from one end and from the other end. But I didn't get the chance to get through that day. I had to wait till the next day to really put the finishing touches on it. And so the next day when I came in, however, the issue wasn't nearly as vibrant to me as it was the day before. I didn't feel nearly as moved by it as before. And so I didn't get it sent off that day. And by the third day, I, I couldn't have cared less. And by the third day, I was beginning to think, you know, that's just exactly what that fellow wants to do. He wants to get me wrapped up in an argument with him so that he can go around saying, you know, that he really had me tied in knots and he really had me concerned. And boy, I was writing and I was really involved with him and so on and so forth. And God began to show me, what do you want to do that for? What do you want to waste your time to do that? You don't need to do that. Yeah, I'll be your defense. You don't have to go out and defend yourself. So that God enabled me, and it was basically through Philippians 1, 12 to 18 that day that I got victory over that. God enabled me to get a better picture of what he was like and to realize that just because these brothers, because of their jealousy or whatever, were trying to use certain things against me, I did not have to respond in the same way. I didn't have to live by my environment. I didn't have to get the human response to that kind of an action. Normally, it would have brought defensiveness out. It didn't have to bring it out. Why? Because I'm locked into another resource, the resource of God. So that as a Christian, I don't have to hate when somebody hates. I may, if I don't want to take advantage of the resources, but I don't have to. As a Christian, I don't have to be despairing when disappointments come along. As a Christian, I can love. Not some sentimental love, but a love that's got real teeth in it, that's based on the character of what God is like. And so God gave me a very thrilling victory that day through the principles of this passage. Now, I don't mean to say that every day that I get that kind of a victory. I find that every once in a while the devil slips through. It's like the camel's nose in the tent door. And he gets a hold on me, and he did it here just a couple of weeks ago on Sunday, and I had to apologize to a guy in the evening service. After the morning service, he landed on me and attacked me, and for some reason or another, boy, I bang, I came right back at, at him and just cut him down the ribbon. After I did it all afternoon, boy, the Lord wouldn't give me an ounce of peace. And until that night, I had to say to this guy publicly that I want to apologize to you. I don't believe I was wrong in what I said, but I was sure wrong 
in the way I said it. There was nothing Christ-like about what I said. But I think we ought to have the good sense to recognize that. And we ought to recognize we don't have to. When we do respond like that, it's because we're not taking advantage of the resources that we have and we haven't been thinking enough about what God is like. For the more I think about what God is like, the less will be the chance that I will fall into the devil's trap when he tries to get me to be defensive and to lash back. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So that Paul gives two examples of how his environment has been used for the glory of God rather than for his own discouragement and destruction. So that the rather of verse 12 is meant to reinterpret his experience in contrast to what the Philippians had said. The Philippians saw it as a detriment to the gospel. Paul sees it as an advance to the gospel. Now, why could Paul say that? Well, I've alluded to it time and again in this, but let me go back to verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now that one verse summarizes all of Romans. Romans is basically a book of doctrine. Philippians is basically a book of experience. But it's experience based on doctrine. So that in Romans 1.6 you have justification, sanctification, and glorification. And that's what you have in Romans. And Paul says, the reason I can think and act the way I am is because of the kind of God I've got. I've got a kind of God who finishes what he starts. And therefore, I know he is involved in what is happening right now. Because nothing could possibly come into my life but by the sovereign overruling of God. And therefore, I am able to say, thank you, Lord, and then to look for a reason for saying thanks. Some time ago, my family was going over that verse, in everything, find a reason for giving thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I was not home at the time, and my wife was having a time with the children. So my wife said, now let's try to find some ways for giving thanks that Daddy is not here. So my little six-year-old, John, he said, well, he says, I'm thankful because if Daddy were home all the time, he said, coming home every night wouldn't be nearly as exciting as coming home just once in a while. And so he said, Daddy's coming home is more exciting because he's gone. So they were trying to find a way for giving thanks for the situation that they had. They could sit back there and gripe. Or they could say, wait a minute, God says, say thank you. And so we want to find a reason for saying thanks. You'll do that in direct proportion to your understanding of what God is like.